Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, and by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet local and regional authors, and sometimes even farther afield with the magic of remote podcasting, and we hear them read their work. We are a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network, a uh, collection of Charlotte podcasts produced in and centering around the Queen City, and also a proud member of Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, broadcasting radio shows and podcasts about authors to a worldwide audience. I'm Landis Wade, the producer and host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer. I'm the author of a trilogy of books where lawyers save Christmas, kind of a cross between My Cousin Vinny and Miracle on 34th Street, and I write stories, and I love books, and I love dogs, and I love beaches and mountains and fly fishing and sports and reading and more. And I'm excited about today's episode, so let's get to it. In today's episode, we visit with Jerry McGee, Ryan McGee, and Sam McGee, co-authors of Sidelines and Bloodlines, a father, his son, and our life in college football. For ESPN's Ryan McGee and attorney Sam McGee, football is a lifelong passion formed from growing up as the sons of Dr. Jerry McGee, a man who wore stripes for decades as one of the most highly decorated officials in college football history. In Sidelines and Bloodlines, Ryan and Sam team up with their father, Jerry, to share lessons learned between the white lines, featuring a cast of characters that runs from no-name small college athletes and coaches to one-name legends such as Holtz, Paterno, Tebow, and Bo. The McGees provide a rare and often hilarious glimpse inside the lives of college officials, detailing how a love for the game convinces accomplished professionals from all walks of life to voluntarily endure ceaseless insults, public criticism, and the express goal of doing one's job on a very public stage in a way that will hopefully not draw any attention to how that job is done. From stories of brawling high school referees and making awkward small talk with George Lucas and Darth Vader at the Rose Bowl, to the heart-taking story of young sons in the stands on Saturday as a stream of profanity-laden insults directed to father drowns out the marching bands, Sidelines and Bloodlines delivers laughs, tears, and a deeper understanding of this sport we call football. We start the show with Dr. Jerry McGee reading from a section early in the book about why and how they do it. They do it because they love it. Uh, I've learned two things about officials over the years. The first is that they are human beings. They make mistakes, just like a player turns the ball over or a coach calls the wrong play at the wrong time. The second is that they truly officiate for the love of the game. They have to, especially now. Youth and high school officials have to deal with crazy parents, and they're making no money. Most college officials aren't making much money either. They all have full-time jobs, and these days their names are out there on social media. Not once have I had an official say they are doing it for the fame or the money. There's not much money, and the best you can hope for is infamy. They do it because they love it, and someone else who loved it first introduced them to it. To do this job, you have to learn detachment. Every game you work is the most important game you ever worked, whether it's Michigan at Notre Dame 
or Rockingham at Hamlet. When I first started working high school games in eastern North Carolina, at least the third of the teams I officiated were being coached by guys I had just gone to college with. But holding is still holding, no matter who, who the people involved are. So I learned very quickly to check that at the door. Relationships, teams you might have rooted for as a kid, famous names, you can't be objective if you don't. In 2002, I worked the Houston Bowl between Southern Miss and Oklahoma State, who had an incredible wide receiver. I loved watching that kid play. Early in the game, he had a 60-yard catch, but we called it back because I got him for offensive pass interference. I wasn't alone. Virgil Valdez, a longtime great official, had it too. Les Miles was Oklahoma State's coach at the time, and he sent word all the way across the field to me. Tell the field judge that's Rashad Woods, and he's a first-team All-American. And I sent word back to Miles, you tell Coach that today he's number 82. Hey, listeners, before we dive into the interview here, I'd like to uh, thank you for taking some of your valuable time to listen to this episode today. We really appreciate it. Uh, I'd also like to let you know about a couple of benefits available to our listeners, including what you can find at the website. Show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Also, if you'd like to support your uh, favorite local independent bookstore and get audiobooks at the same time, uh, you can join libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O.fm, and if you use the promo code Charlotte Reader, that's all one word, you may not be from Charlotte, but you can still be a Charlotte Reader to get this benefit. When you use that promo code, you're going to get uh, two books for the price of one when you join at uh, Libro's $14.99 monthly membership level. This is a great way to support uh, your local independent bookstore and get uh, great audiobooks uh, at the same time. Oh, and speaking of audiobooks, and now that Christmas is around the corner, I'd like to uh, let you know that my three books in the Christmas Courtroom Trilogy are now uh, on audiobooks, and you can find all three wherever you like to get your audiobooks, and also at Libro.fm. I'm really excited about the fact that I connected uh, with uh, an actor in uh, L.A. who is the narrator for this series. His name is uh, Bill A. Jones. He's best known for uh, his role as Rod Remington from Fox TV's Glee. But he's also appeared in a number of other uh, shows, Days of Our Lives, The King of Queens, The Drew Carey Show, and much, much more. He's really a funny guy. He does justice to this series that's a cross between My Cousin Vinny and Miracle on 34th Street. And if you like to read better than you like to listen to audiobooks, you can now get the first book uh, free as an ebook. It's permanently free on all major online platforms, including Amazon's Kindle. And we also send you a free copy of that uh, first book if you sign up for the Charlotte Rears Podcast newsletter, which you can do at the website. We don't uh, spam you if you do that. That takes way too much time. We do provide a bi-weekly uh, newsletter with uh, information about our authors, readings, with video links, and other information about the craft or business of writing and what our authors are up to. So it's a great way to keep up with what's going on in the show and uh, engage with our author community. But enough about books, audiobooks, and newsletters. Uh, it's time to get to this very interesting episode. Uh, about a family that loved football. You're going to meet uh, Dr. Jerry McGee. Uh, he's a star of the book, Sidelines and Bloodlines, a father, his sons, and our life in college football. And he is the father to co-authors Ryan and Sam McGee. 
Uh, Jerry officiated at the college level for many years and was selected to do so in a number of high-profile games. He's a member of eight halls of fame, including the North Carolina Sports Hall of Fame. When not calling games on the gridiron, Jerry served as senior-level administrator of four private colleges and universities in the Carolinas, including 23 years as president of Wingate University. He served two terms on the President's Council of the NCAA, chaired two football issues committees for the NCAA, and represented college football on the board of directors of the National Sports Official Organization for six years. Ryan McGee is an ESPN senior writer and New York Times bestseller with Guy, co-authoring Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s Racing to the Finish in 2018. He started with ESPN on the production staff of the show RPM 2 Night, during which time he began contributing to ESPN the magazine and ESPN.com. He produced Totally NASCAR on Fox Sports Net for three seasons and for five years served as editor-in-chief at NASCAR Media Group before returning to ESPN full-time. Ryan is a five-time Sports Emmy winner, six-time National Motorsports Press Association Writer of the Year, and penned the script for the documentary film Dale, narrated by Paul Newman. He's covered all forms of motorsports and college sports, as well as Major League Baseball, NFL, and everything from space jumping to snowmobile racing. He co-hosts Marty and McGee on ESPN Radio and the SEC Network with Marty Smith. Sam McGee is an author, trial lawyer, and fisherman, and the younger brother to Ryan. Uh, he met his wife, Marcy, while he was an undergrad at Wake Forest University, married her immediately after graduating Yale Law School, and later convinced her to let him attend Jerry Spence's Trial Lawyers College. Sam and Marcy are the proud parents of uh, two children, both of whom speak Mandarin and love sports and travel. Theirs is a household of four people who completely adore one another and spend most of their limited time supporting each other's pursuits. Despite Sam being busy with trials, swim meets, and baseball tournaments, his family does allow him to write and fish, too. In addition to co-authoring Sidelines and Bloodlines with his father and brother, his debut novel, Cartilage Creek, is forthcoming from Fireship Press in 2021. It's a book inspired by his family's true Civil War story. Jerry McGee, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, Ryan McGee, welcome. Hey, how we doing? Good. And Sam, welcome. Glad to be here. Yeah, so congratulations to all three of you on this book. Uh, before we dive into the stories for this book, um, I'd like to talk just a minute about the journey of putting this together. Uh, when did you decide uh, as uh, the three McGees to, to write this book, and uh, uh, how did this process come together? Well, well, it's safe to say that we we began writing the book uh, 20 years ago uh, when I started speaking at, at, at um, sportsmen's clubs, uh, different uh, rotary clubs around North and South Carolina. When I finished speaking, someone would always say, gosh, you need to write a book about those football stories. And we just kind of laughed and took a note here and there, whatever. We kept saying we we're going to write the book, but, but obviously I had a pretty demanding job and uh, Sam and Ryan have demanding jobs. It was really hard to find the time. And we finally uh, committed to one another to do it and, uh, and sort of spend more time together and looking at old films and, and here we have a book. Yeah, and so, and, and Ryan, you, you kind of, I don't know who took the lead in this, but uh, you, you, you use your narrator voice in the book, and then uh, we drop these uh, boxes in where Sam and uh, Jerry's voice come together. From your perspective, why write this book, Ryan? I mean, it's what Dad said. I mean, it's, it's um, you know, I can't do my job, and I learned in writing this book that, that, there's a huge part of officiating that works its way into Sam's job. You know, this is just what we do every day. And from the time that Sam and I were kids, 
most of the conversations that we have with our friends when it came to sports, which is most of the conversations you have when you're, you know, a young boy is uh, it centered on what dad had done on Saturday or where we had been on Saturday with dad. And so we had all these stories stockpiled and I was real fortunate that I was able to write a book a couple of years ago with Dale Earnhardt Jr. And my book agent came to me and she said, you got a little bit of momentum right now. I think we could, whatever you want to do, if there's a project you've always wanted to work on, uh, this might be the time to do it. And I was like, I got the one and, uh, and, and called dad Samson. I think, I think we've been telling everybody we should write a book. Well, I think we could actually write a book. And so, uh, we were very, very fortunate that we were given the opportunity. And, and, uh, I think it turned out, it turned out as, as great as I was hoping that it was going to. Had always it, it was a great read. And, uh, I, I mean, I picked it up and read it very quickly and, uh, I was, you know, I don't know if we were Facebook and speak, whatever, Sam, we got together. I'm going to throw this next question to you, Sam. Um, you've got your father, who is a college president, Ryan. He's ESPN writer and commentator. You're a lawyer. You're in the trenches. You're in court. So how did a father and two sons, all very successful in different professions, figure out how to do anything together, much less write a book together? <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned, you know, dad's one that refereed. 400 football games and Ryan's a sports writer. So you could have asked me, what's the law you're doing here? Um, <laughs> I, I kind of did, but I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the best things about this, Landis, is that it, it we, we all live within three or four miles of each other. Um, but, you know, Ryan and I are busy and running around and, and have, you know, teenage children and have all their activities. This sort of forced us to get together and do this. And it's real easy for me to say, I don't have time for this. I don't have time for that. Or, or for Ryan to say, Hey, I'm covering this game, this race, got this article to write. Um, but this kind of, this kind of made us get together. And a lot of times it was over lunch or eating pizza, watching game films in Ryan's basement. Uh, but it really made us get together and do what we really enjoy to do, which is sit around and talk about these, about these stories. So, um, I'm glad we did the book so that the book's out there, but for no other reason, it really made us, you know, get together and reminisce. Yeah. We're going to have some great stories we're going to talk about today. Um, listeners. So stay with us, but, uh, uh, sometimes our listeners like to hear about how writers work and how they come together. And this really probably took a division of responsibility. I know Ryan, you said that you wrote uh, a book about Dale Earnhardt Jr., but you're writing that yourself. You're researching it yourself. This is a book that requires, you know, more than just you to pull together. And uh, talk about the division of responsibility and how you actually pulled this off. Well, uh, I kind of basically was sitting down with Sam, like you said, at lunch or sitting down with dad at lunch. And I had I thought I had a Landis a pretty good view of what all the best stories were. But the most pleasant surprise in the whole process was, I mean, the very first lunch I had with Sam uh, over by Park Road Shopping Center he told me five stories I had never heard before. Right. And so I, I thought I knew all the stories and that, I, that's just, you know, egocentric sports writer guy. I thought, oh, I remember them all. I was there. I, and, and within five minutes, Sam had told me two or three stories and, and I'm, I'm mad at dad because the book came out a while ago and, and still I a radio interview. I hear he tells another story and I'm like, well, damn, I probably should have been in the book. Dad. So, so it's, it's, it's <laughs> I, that I, I really believed that I knew more than I knew. And, and I think that was the best part. But as far as the writing responsibility, it just was a matter of, you know, I kind of knew what the timeline was 
And dad and I had talked about, I knew the points that he wanted to make about officiating, but I also knew kind of what the highlight stories were for, for Sam and myself. And so it just was a matter of, of putting the timeline together in a way. And, and, and then we had all these amazing crossover stories with, you know, the likes of Bobby Bowden and Mike Leach and Ray, Ray Lewis and these guys and trying to figure out a way to weave those in. And we just kind of gave them their own sections. You know, we used those as the chapter breaks, which I was a good way to uh, not have to shoehorn those stories in, in between our stories. Let us have the chapters and then we'll let the, you know, the, the celebrities, let them have their own deals in between. So uh, once these guys kind of agreed to the format, it just was a matter of me making sure that I had all of the best stories from them and dropping that into, you know, kind of the outline that we put together. Yes. As I say, it's a very readable book and their personal reflections in it. Uh, it's been good reception. I mean, uh, here's a description, right? Thompson, I came uh, on these hilarious stories about the strange place referees occupy in our sporting world and found myself pulled deep into a tale of family, fathers and sons. And how we never forget the way back home. And that sort of prompted a question for me. And I'll start with Jerry. Um, You've got uh, this family, um, you and your two children, uh, this life in college football. Talk for just a moment, Jerry, about what that meant to you to have your sons in your life while you were going through this experience as a college official. Good. We've always done things as a family. You know, we've made decisions as a family. We've traveled as a family. And and, uh, uh, it's we've been maybe a little closer than, than some families, but I had a a job. I was uh, primarily a fundraiser for universities before I became president. Of course, after you're president, you're still, still a fundraiser, but I, so I had to travel a lot. And, you know, I was, a lot of times I'd leave on, on Tuesday, get home on Thursday and pack my football bag and and leave late, late on Friday and get home Saturday night or Sunday morning. So if we were going to have family time, you know, I had to somehow figure out a way to involve them with me. And so occasionally the, when we're living on Tobacco Road, you know, if I had a game at Carolina, Duke, or Wake Forest, even Virginia, the family could go. But so many times I was going to Florida State or I was going to Clemson, I was going to New Jersey or someplace, and they couldn't go. But but I try to take Ryan with me occasionally, but just the two of us, and I take Sam occasionally, just the two of us. And kind of involve them in what we were doing and let them sit in on the officials meeting and have dinner with the officials and and maybe have a chance to meet one of the head coaches. And, and so kind of let them understand what I was doing on those Saturdays when they weren't around. So uh, but, but it, yeah. it was by design to get them involved as much as I could. And that's nice. And Sam, you were the, the youngest uh, here of the, of, the, of the two brothers uh, on the show today. You, you uh, Actually, there's a little story in the book about you putting a, a, an official's hat on and never want to take it off as a kid. We've got a little photo. I'm going to probably drop that in the show notes to embarrass you. Uh, but uh, from your perspective as the youngest and tagging along with your dad, what did it mean to you to be a part of this uh, experience that your father was going through? Uh, it meant everything to me. Um, you know, when you're the youngest and uh, you're a small kid like I was, and you know, there's a lot of times where you feel like you're having to, you know, fight your way in or make sure you're getting uh, the attention that you might want. And uh, this, it always made me feel like I was a part of it. And, you know, like after the game, when the, when the crew is, is in a hotel conference room, eating pizza, talking about this play or that play, or, or, you know, whether it's to, to, 
maybe there's some criticism, but more often it's to say, hey, you know, good job on this play, or you really had that uh, downfield play nailed. You know, I'm in the room, you know, and, and I even get to contribute to that conversation as a, as a pretty young kid. And uh, that really made me feel part of it. Or, you know, getting into the, to the stadium early, you know, walking the turf or the Orange Bowl or the Rose Bowl the day before the game, you know, at the Orange Bowl when they're trying to figure out how to run the Buffalo across the field, um, you know, from Colorado. Uh, or being a ball boy at scrimmages at NC State when I was a kid, um, it did it did a lot of things for me. It made me feel like I was a part of the game, but it also made me feel like I was a part of my dad's world. You know, there was this world of adults out there, and that's that was kind of my best, you know, glimpse behind the curtain when I was a young kid. And I think that was part of the thing with the referees had. I mean, dad traveled a ton, but you know, he was there. He was coaching my baseball teams. He was involved in our lives. And I'm not sure I realized how hard he was working to be present for us, even when he had a job that made him travel and a hobby that made him travel. Um, so I got addicted to that hat. And I mean, <laughs> that my teacher couldn't get me to take it off. And the <laughs> they literally are, are fussing with me, trying to get me to take it off for a school picture. And I'm absolutely, you know, refusing. And the other kids are chiming in and some of them are yelling, take it off. And some of them yelling, keep it on. And, and, uh, but the hat stayed on my head. Uh, Mom would have to fight me to get the hat off for me to take a bath. Um, well, your stubbornness has continued in your long time. <laughs> Worked I, out. I, yeah, exactly. It was tra- I was training to one day deal with the Landis Wades of the world. Exactly, exactly. So, so <clears throat> Ryan, you were also very proud of your dad. And, and I think uh, having read the book, your colleagues at ESPN gave you a little hard time about that because you, you might make a comment on, did you see that official do that? So, yeah, Ryan, we know – your dad's a college official. So uh, talk about that a little bit, you, you know, being able to be present and involved as you're pursuing this career in, uh, in sports. Yeah. Well, well that, that's what Sam's talking about, about getting to the stadium early. That's addicting. Like once you get a taste of that, like, you know, I've never been on drugs, but that's walking into that stadium and that feeling that you get you know, in your spine, you got to get that hit again and you got to get that feeling again. And so, I, the first time that Sam and I, either one had a sideline credential, we were, I was 13, he was 10. I remember looking around distinctly and thinking, I got to figure out how to do this. All of these people here today on this sideline, photographers in the Washington Post and reporters in the press box, they're getting paid to be here and they're feeding them lunch. You know, how do you, how do you get to do this for a living? These are all grown adults. And so I spent my whole life, I, I remember the second time I had credentials, uh, sideline credentials, uh, photographer's credentials was a Duke Maryland game at Duke. And at halftime, the photographers were like, come on, kid, come with me. And we walked up through the grandstands and went into the press box and they gave us a, a box with a barbecue sandwich and some fried chicken and a chocolate chip cookie and a bag of potato chips. And Miss North Carolina walked by and said, Hey guys, how are you today? And then Mike Krzyzewski walked by, Hey guys, what's going on? And I was like, and then we walked back down and watched the second half. And I was like, I have to do this. And so my whole goal at that point was to figure out how to be be able to do that for a living. And, and that was, uh, you know, knock on wood, uh, you know, COVID notwithstanding, that's what I do. But yeah, my, my colleagues, they are, I think, jealous of the perspective I have on the game and that Sam and I both have on the game that other people don't, but you talk to kids of coaches or former players and they learn the game differently. And so Sam and I learned the game differently, but even like this past January of, of 2020, you know, back when everything was normal in the press box of the Superdome, 
I jumped up during the TV timeout. I went, the officials are arguing. <laughs> and and all, all my colleagues were like, okay. I go, no, no, watch them. I said, they're, I said the, the back judge is really mad. I said, because the guy all the way across the field just threw a flag that was nowhere near where he was. And I said, and, and look at them. They're having an argument. And the White Hat was, was officiating an argument between these guys. And they're all like, okay, Ryan, you know, whatever. <laughs> but, but you could, it affected the crew for the next couple of drives. And so that's, that's the way I watch football. And, uh, you know, Sam tells a great story in the book about sitting on the top row of the Orange Bowl and screaming because Louisville had 12 men on the field on defense. And sure enough, that was the flag that was thrown. And this guy, I mean, they're 100 miles from the field. This guy's like, do you always count the players on defense? And Sam's like, yeah, don't you? <laughs> Doesn't everybody? That's kind of how we learned the game. Exactly. Exactly. And I, and I love how uh, you know, y'all were able to tag along and be a part of this experience. And one of the reasons I wanted to do this, uh, and apart from knowing uh, Sam and reading this book, is when I was younger, uh, my dad was a high school official, and uh, he coached with a lot of officials. Who, I mean, officially with a lot of officials who went on to be in the NFL. And he he was uh, selected to be the uh, the white hat for the Shrine Bowl, and so I was probably fourteen or so, and I had my little eight millimeter, and I was taking <laughs> I had sideline passes, and now he gave it up to come watch me play high school football because he couldn't figure out how to be away on Friday nights and watch me on Fridays too, but. Uh, that whole experience, I mean, I can relate directly to it and also to some of the stories that they told. So, um, And also, uh, we're going to put this out in December, and I thought my dad would really enjoy this if he were with us today. And so we're going to put it out, uh, you know, uh, close to the anniversary of his death a couple of years ago. And it's just uh, it's wonderful for me to be talking about this topic, knowing how important it was to him and knowing how many friends he made as an official. And I guess, Jerry, you know, that is one of the things that comes out of this. You know, some people – you know, have their fishing buddies. Some people have, you know, their buddies that they watch football with on, or, or, or they play cards with. You had a group of friends that you went and officiated football games with, and you didn't make a whole lot of money doing it. Uh, and in high school, you sometimes got to run out of places to eat. That's exactly right. And, and literally, uh, my best friends in the world were guys I officiated uh, college football with. And, uh, uh, that was a hard thing about retiring from officiating was, uh, you know, you don't bump into those guys. They, they live from Boston to Miami. So, you know, you, 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 you're probably never going to see them again. And that, that was a really hard part because for nearly four decades, they'd been a, a vital part of, part of my life. But one thing I, I will, I, I, you mentioned your dad officiating high school. That's where the fun is. You know, when you get to a port, you know, when you work in the, the Rose Bowl, it's, it's a great experience, but it's not a lot of fun because it it's kind of becomes work. But I, I always I was so appreciative of the men who helped me move along in high school officiating who got me started. That I used to always go see them. If, if I had the Orange Bowl or the Rose Bowl, I'd always buy a hat or a shirt or something. And I'd go down to Rockingham and have lunch with them and, and give them that hat or shirt and tell them I appreciated them helping me get to where I was. And I know I, I got, my, after my last game, the national championship game, my last game, I, I took a bunch of hats to Rockingham and, and LRB and handed them out to people that I loved and I enjoyed working with over the years. Now let's talk about the book title before we jump into some stories here. Uh, it's uh Sidelines and Bloodlines, and uh, it's a father, his sons, and our life in college football. On the sidelines and bloodlines, I think I know where sidelines come from. Jerry, your position on the field was a sideline judge, right? Yeah, I, I began college officiating as a line judge because we didn't have field judges. Uh, we only had five officials. But when they added the field judge position, I moved downfield. And basically, you've 
you're 20 yards downfield with the play coming right at you. And you've got a lot of long runs. You've got pass interferences. You've got goal line plays, in line plays, sideline plays. You've got uh, illegal blocks on kicks and that sort of thing. But it's uh, it required a great deal of running, much more than most of the positions. So, uh, uh, but that, that's where I love to be. Well, that brings up a question, I guess, for Ron or Sam. Is, did you think your dad was fast enough to keep up with this? <laughs> I, I knew he could keep up with them running backwards. That, that's the thing is, you know, our neighbors, uh, particularly back in the Shelby days, back in the early or late 70s, early 80s, and they'd see dad running wind sprints in the yard, backyard. He's running backwards. And uh, and the reason was because that's, you know, if you watch the officials, that's in, in fact the one time that I've ever officiated anything. I, I was For the SEC Network, I did a South Carolina scrimmage, and they put me at dad's position. And – the next day, my calves were just screaming. And the reason was because I was running backwards, you know, on those turf shoes for, for three and a half hours. And so, yeah, no, I knew he could. And, you know, plus they gave him a head start. In the beginning, they didn't give him a head start. But by the end of his career, they gave him a head start. So, you know, if he wouldn't, if he got beat to the goal line, we'd give him a hard time. And, Ryan, was that the same play of I'm recalling from the book where you didn't quite get all the way to the goal line when you made the call? Oh, yeah. No, I thought I nailed it. But uh, it was stunning. You talk about the sideline. It was stunning having stood on the sideline for all those years from when I was Sam and I were 10, 13 years old, you don't think there's that much of a difference when you walk five feet, you know, on the other side of that white line. And so that day I walked out there at Williams Bright Stadium, pff, this whatever, man, I got this. I was behind the whole game. And now I'll say this, my, my, the guy on my sideline, uh, I had to help him cause he just had like knee surgery. He's a former NFL player. So I kept having to run up and down the field, but every play got behind me. And the one play I thought I nailed was right at the goal line. And if you read the book, you know, the only couple of plays of dad's career that he still, you know, still dissects were all these kind of corner pylon, you know, uh, end zone plays. And I had one of those and I thought, I just nailed that, man. And then we had an eva- time with the evaluator in the press box and he chewed me out. He's, I, I think his exact words were, uh, your father was never out of position in however many years he officiated and you were not in position all day today. <laughs> Well, and I, I know what you're talking about running backwards. I was a defensive back in college. Exactly. And, yeah. And I always ran backwards. And I always felt like hey, you better learn how to run backwards because they're, they're running fast at you. Let me play, let me play this one to Sam. Uh, the, the other part of the title is bloodlines, and I can see bloodlines sort of uh, in family lineage and that kind of thing. But uh, sometimes you get kind of, uh, you know, bloody uh, on the sidelines, so to speak, with all the yelling and screaming and everything else is going on. Where did that title come from? I, I think it's primarily from the uh, from the family aspect, although I'll tell you, I haven't been on the sidelines for some games, particularly when I got the ball boy uh, 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 scrimmages at um, NC State and ball boy at Furman. There's a lot of actual bleeding that goes on, <laughs> on the sidelines. But, um, but really it was, you know, the fact that it's not just a football, but it's what it meant to our family, uh, to all of us. Obviously, you know, we've already talked some about, you know, how uh, how Ryan and I, you know, came along getting to go to games as a kid and how it made us, you know, see that adult world and, and, and have a closer relationship with our father. But, but really, you know, mom, too. I mean, you can tell that reading the book, you know, nobody enjoyed those weekend trips uh, and the travel to different places. Uh, more than mom did. I don't think anybody enjoyed the bowl game trips more than mom did. For some reason, when I think back on it now, 
you know, the game wasn't as important to her as it was to us, but the actual game. Uh, but for some reason, the one example that always comes back to my mind is when we went to the Rose Bowl the first time dad had it, when it was uh, Arizona State, Ohio State, and it was going to determine the national championship. And the part of it that mom loved the best was when we got to go to the big warehouse where they were assembling the floats and they had those millions of flower petals and they were attaching them to those uh, 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 floats for the, for the tournament of roses parade. And uh, I mean, she was on cloud nine. She would have never left that warehouse the way that Ryan and I didn't want to leave the football field when we got to get in there early to uh, walk around the field. But, but she, she loved all that. Uh, she loved all that as much as any of us, but that would just kind of shows when you, when you talk, think about bloodlines, it was all of us as a family um, enjoying college football and everything that went with it. Yeah. And, and your book cover, it'll be in the show notes. Uh, it's three of you standing on the sidelines. Uh, your father's in the middle. Um, it's uh, there's smiles on your faces. It just looks like uh, you're all enjoying this experience. Now, which game was this, the photo that's on the cover here? Uh, that was the uh, first ACC championship game. It was played at the Gator Bowl in Jacksonville. It was uh, Florida State and Virginia Tech. We thought that was going to be my last game. I had planned to retire that year. And, and uh, when we took that picture, I had planned to retire. But after the game, I decided to stay three more years. Ryan <laughs> <laughs> and I both hightailed it to Jacksonville thinking we were going to see Dad's last game. So, Oh, yeah. No, we left We left our wives at home with little babies and the whole thing. And, yeah, we, we got down there. And, we, and, and listen, but that day – it's funny because Sam and I, as we got older and had kids, we weren't able to go to games like we used to. And that day was one of my favorite memories of all time because Sam and I that, – that, you look at that picture, the stadium's completely empty. So that's what we're talking about. We got there early, and then Sam and I went out to the fan zone and tried to kick some field goals and drank some free Dr. Pepper or whatever was going on out there. And then we sat in the stand. I was telling my daughter a story yesterday about, uh, about Sam and I sitting in the grandstands at that game and watching the marching bands. And so it just, that was one of the best days. And then they made us leave and we were mad because we didn't want to leave the game. It was a tight game. We had to sit in the van and dad, <laughs> dad runs off the field, gets in the van. And we're like, congratulations on a great career. And police escort out to the highway and hauling butt back to the hotel. And dad goes, I think I'll do one more year. <laughs> and, and it was, uh, and it ended up doing three more years. So. Yeah, that's great. All right. well, we're going to take a little short break here, but when we come back, uh, listeners, we're going to dive into some stories. We're going to have some more readings. You're going to find out uh, the answer to the question, or access more of a statement, but uh, if you can officiate Sigma Nu versus the Vikings, <laughs> you, can work, you can actually work the Rose Bowl. So, uh, so stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, listeners, quick shout out here to the team that helps me uh, promote uh, the podcast and the authors who appear on the podcast, uh, starting with uh, Social Grit Marketing. As a creator, I love collaborating with other creative people, especially the kind of social grit who know their craft and I appreciate what they've done with the look and reach of Charlotte Rivers Podcast Facebook and Instagram pages Wade and Renee have been easy and fun to work with and their efforts show they generally want the podcast to succeed they even have kind of a nice bedside manner for those off the wall ideas I throw at them from time to time offer either a clever tweak or a better idea instead and as a podcast whose mission is to help authors tell their stories I didn't realize until Wade and Renee explained it to me that social media is all about storytelling uh, and they work hard to do just that oh and did I say they have a sense of humor definitely a plus in the world of social media 
And then when it comes to uh, publicity and engaging uh, with events uh, and also helping to promote our authors, uh, I really love working with Spellbound Public Relations, in particular uh, Hannah Turner, uh, who is the uh, chief, uh, I guess, literary cook and bottle washer there. She uh, brings so much energy and excitement to the table that even the most self-conscious, introverted, I don't want to toot my own horn kind of client will find themselves excited about marketing. And she's provided smart, creative, and timely marketing ideas and actions uh, for this podcast, not to mention referring talented authors uh, to the show. She's an initiator who is responsive, creative, easy to talk with, and makes marketing fun. What else could you want in a publicist? So if you're looking for some social media help or some publicity help, uh, you know, whether you're an author or small business, uh, whatever, uh, check out uh, Social Grip Marketing and uh, Spellbound Public Relations. And hey, just one more thing, since it's uh, Christmas here, I thought I would share just a little clip from the third book in the uh, Christmas Courtroom Trilogy. Uh, Sam, who's on the show, appreciate this being a lawyer. This is a scene uh, in the book where uh, one of the protagonists uh, has to deal with uh, somewhat of an unruly lawyer on the other side. The first few months of the reindeer hoverboard lawsuit taught Raker three things about Tarina Winter, the president of Tip Top Toy Company, his new client. She was headstrong, mysterious, and uncompromising. Her behavior today in her deposition was no exception. The court reporter eyed Tarina, ready to take down exactly what she said, but Tarina was silent in response to the last question. The reporter glanced at Raker, but he could only shrug. Did you understand my question? Robert Greenback was the lawyer for the plaintiffs. Victims, he liked to call them. I understood it, Tarina replied. Well, Greenback was impatient. Is the answer yes or no? It's not that simple. And why not? Because answering your question does not answer why the hoverboard didn't work. Greenback was a big man. When he stood up to get water from the credenza, it was all effort with a bit of wheezing. He poured a glass, took a swallow, and turned to the court reporter. Read back the last question. The court reporter complied. Was Tip Top Toy Company the manufacturer of the computer chip that caused the reindeer hoverboard to malfunction? Tarina Winter still didn't speak. Greenback sat back down. I will break it down for you. Was Tip Top Toy Company the manufacturer of the computer chip? Yes. And did the computer chip control the flying abilities of the reindeer hoverboard? Yes. And did the reindeer hoverboard, the most sought-after Christmas present in the last 50 years, turn out to be a complete disaster? Objection, Raker said, argumentative. Greenback puffed his chest. Mr. Raker, this is cross-examination. Of course it's argumentative. Your client is the one being difficult. Mr. Greenback, this is not closing argument. The objection is to the form of your question, in particular the words, complete disaster. Please rephrase your question. You don't think it was a complete disaster? Just a disaster? I'm not the one testifying, Raker said. I couldn't agree more, Greenback said. Raker didn't enjoy this part of the legal process. Defending a deposition was like having a cavity filled without Novocaine. All he could do was grunt, object, when the dentist-like lawyer struck his nerve. Tarina Winter appeared unmoved by the bickering among the lawyers. Her facial expression could best be described as confident but indifferent. She looked to be in her 60s, a tall, fit, well-shaped woman 
with porcelain skin complemented by silver-gray hair. She brushed a fallen strand of that hair from in front of ice-green eyes and stared at Greenback. I am fully prepared to answer your question, even though it is ill-conceived, presumptuous, and sarcastic. Robert Greenback became more aggressive. Insulting me is not a good idea. I'm sworn to tell the truth, Mr. Greenback. That's the way you want to play it? I'm not here to play with you, sir. I can see you are not a very playful person. Breaker made a note on his legal pad that said, remind client to be respectful, and then circled it. Greenback tossed a notepad onto the table. We'll come back to this topic later. Tell me about your company. It will come in handy when I get the judgment that puts you out of business. Tarina Winter ignored the jab. What do you want to know, she asked. For starters, who owns it? I have a 50-50 partner. His name? Next question, Tarina said, one that has something to do with this lawsuit. Greenback slammed his fist on the table, causing Raker's papers to scatter and the water in his glass to swirl. He shouted at Raker, Do we have to go to the judge about this behavior? Raker remained calm, picked up his glass, and took a sip of water. Perhaps we should. I can let the judge know you lost your temper and tried to break my table. On the other hand, it would be quicker if you just laid a foundation for your question. Fine, Greenback said. Ms. Winter, was your partner involved in overseeing the manufacturer of the computer chip? No. You're not going to tell me his name? No, and it's not a he. Honestly, what makes men think that two women can't own a successful business? Greenback didn't apologize. Let's focus on the business itself. Headquarters? Greenland. Manufacturing plants? U.S., U.K., Italy, and Argentina. Where was the computer chip made? Greenland. Who designed the chip? You're looking at her. Now we're getting somewhere, Greenback said. Tarina Winter brushed some lint from her sweater. It took you long enough. Hey, listeners, I'm back with uh, Jerry, Ryan, and Sam McGee, and we're talking about the book Sidelines and Bloodlines of Father, His Sons, and Our Life in College Football. And uh, we're going to be talking stories now from the book. And one of the stories uh, is about uh, interaction that takes place between the officials and the coaches. Uh, they have in their house uh, what they call the Wall of Screaming. And uh, Ryan's going to set it up with a little read, followed by a read by uh, Jerry and then Sam. And uh, so... Uh, Ryan, whenever you're ready, this is uh, about the middle of the book. Uh, you pick it up whenever you're ready. The space that always grabs the attention of visitors is what I have always called the Wall of Screaming. It's a series of framed photos purchased from newspaper photographers around the nation. Images we spotted on Sunday mornings at airport newsstands while we were waiting to fly back from games or in the later years on university websites. Many of them are big moments. Standing at the goal line at Penn, as Penn State's Curtis Enos hauls in a touchdown against USC in the kickoff classic at the Meadowlands in 1996, laughing it up with Frank Howard at Clemson in 1986, standing with the Florida State captains moments before marching to midfield for the coin toss at the inaugural ACC championship game in 2005, eyeballing a catch by Georgia Tech's James Johnson versus arch-rival Georgia in the game they call clean, old-fashioned hate. However, the best photos are of the angry coaches. There's Joe Morrison the man who built South Carolina into something other than an also-ran, who introduced the Gamecocks' black jerseys in their 2001 A Space Odyssey Stadium entrance. On the sideline during the Clemson game in 1984, Old Dependable is screaming, 
his jaw unhinged, and he appears to be pointing directly at Dad, who appears to be totally ignoring the coach. The caption that accompanied the photo in that Sunday morning paper read, Coach Joe Morrison explains his point of view to a less than interested official. <laughs> the most notable photo on the wall of screaming was taken in Tuscaloosa, Alabama on October 6, 2006, when Duke visited Alabama. Crimson Tide head coach Mike Shula is standing at most two feet off the back of dad's head, his mouth wide open and his hand extended to underline the point he's so angrily exclaiming. Once again, dad seems to be purposely ignoring it, looking toward the scoreboard clock as he fills out his penalty card with the details of the foul that Shula is so unhappy about. Alabama won that game 30-14, to the third from last win of Shula's four-year Tuscaloosa tenure. Six weeks later, he was fired. They replaced him with some guy named Nick Saban. <laughs> when I look at that picture, uh, what I think about is the amount of pressure these coaches are under. Uh, when Mike Shula was unloading on me that night, he probably already knew he was finished. It's a reminder that you never truly know what's going on with a coach behind closed doors. The reality is that over 404 games of college football officiating, almost all of it on the sideline. I only remember a few times when a coach truly just flipped out on me. And looking back, like Shula that night, there was almost always something else behind it. I think football fans assume that officials out there are just looking for a reason to throw his penalty flag. But the good ones have the complete opposite approach. Typically, if a player draws an unsportsmanlike penalty or even something like a holding, there's a really good chance that an official has already warned him about it at least once. Keep that up, and we're going to have to flag you. Anyone who doesn't believe that needs to do what we have always done and really watch how a good sideline official reacts to a coach who has spent a ridiculous amount of time in the game screaming, yelling, and complaining. The official will walk away from a coach like that. They will warn him directly. They will even go to other people on the sideline and say, hey, someone needs to calm him down before he draws an unsportsmanlike. If it keeps up after that, there's going to be a penalty. Or if he breaks the golden rule. The clock is ticking down to the end of the first half, and he's just getting louder and louder. I'm watching the clock thinking, okay, we're going to be saved by the bell here. Then with about 38 seconds remaining, Coach Young leaned right into my ear and screamed, you guys are just a bunch of goddamn son of a bitches, aren't you? I threw my flag. Personal foul, 15 yards. I went into the white hat, Bob Cooper, and he said, what in the hell have you done? That's probably the nicest head coach in America. I said, well, I just flagged him. Bob said, wow, what did he say? He called me a goddamn son of a bitch. Bob said, well, you are a goddamn son of a bitch. And I told Bob, well, he said you were a goddamn son of a bitch too. Bob said, well, give me that damn football. And he marked off a 15-yard penalty. <laughs> uh, that's a great story. It's one great, uh, great story. Uh, well, I think I think you did that just so you could make the president of a former Baptist university. That's it. That on it. Yeah, I, yeah. I, that, that's why I picked that section. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. I appreciate that effort. Yeah, that's good. Uh, well, I, I talked uh, before the break uh, about uh, one of the early chapters in the book. If you can officiate Sigma Nu versus the Pikas, you can work the Rose Bowl. And you talked about that, Jerry, in the, in the first uh, couple of chapters of the book. Uh, you went from intramurals to high school to college and then all over 
college landscape. Uh, talk about the, a little bit between you know what you did initially in intramurals and and why you can make this statement that uh, if you can do that, by gosh, you can you can you can eventually uh, officiate the Rose Bowl. Well, I, I I was always broke when I was in college. I could make just enough money in the summer to to pay my bills and and when I got back to school, but I never had any spending money. So I had to have a part-time job and I was out of, I was out playing an intramural football game and I was bored out of my mind. And one of the officials said, well, I said, you, you played some football. I said, you ought to come out and help us officiate. And so I said, well, maybe I'll try that. So I went out and started officiating some games. You can make $2 a game. And uh, pretty soon I found myself recruiting other officials and out training the officials and eventually becoming head of the student intramural program. But uh, usually the, the Sigma Nu Pika game was played just right after uh, a keg party. And uh, usually we, we knew we were in trouble when we went out for the coin toss and nobody could understand us. And, uh, but So there was a little pushing and shoving and uh, and uh, just, a, just a smidge of profanity and, and – uh, and you know those they were kind of the two top social fraternities, and so they were uh, uh, a little testosterone involved there too. But they they were they were trying to prove who was the, the the best fraternity on campus. And at least when you you do you do Michigan Notre Dame, it's a little calmer. There we do have rules, and and uh, and we are and there's a coaches controlling them. You know the the. Usually, the coach of the Sigma Nu team was the most drunkest guy there, so uh, it, it it was a little different than what we dealt with later. Yeah, and Jerry, you talked about officiating high school football and how that was really something that you really enjoyed. I, I take it that there was a lot of camaraderie that occurred after the game with officials. And I remember one story from the book. You talked about uh, officiating in Waitsboro High, and there was Bowman's Restaurant where everybody always went after the game. Except, uh, tell us what happened. Uh, after one game you officiated when you went to eat it at Yeah, Ed Emery was was the coach there. Ed went on, as you might remember, to be the head coach at East Carolina. So he, he was quite a football guy. And uh, he was coaching at Wadesboro High, and he would always, after the game, we would go to Bowman's. So they'd have a little private room for the four officials, and we'd go back and have, we'd have a steak and all compliments of Coach Emery. And we'd go up there one night to officiate a game, and uh, – three of the four officials were East Carolina guys. And of course, Ed had played at East Carolina and one of his former teammates, Jerry Brooks was, was one of the officials in the game. And so Ed laughed and said, well, I got it made tonight. Three East Carolina guys here. I'm good. Well, late in the game when a, a young man for Raysboro broke a long run to apparently win the game, his former college teammate had called holding. And uh, so the play got called back and Waysboro lost the game. So, in the locker room, the I said, guys, we're not going to get a steak tonight. And they all said, oh, Ed wouldn't do us like that. Ed, Ed's too nice a guy. So we got dressed and we walked into Bowman's and and it was it's kind of like Ryan has said, it's kind of like the old West where you, the, the, the gunslinger walks in the bar and everybody stops and turns and looks at him. That's the way they looked at us. And and the manager said, what the hell are y'all doing here? And we said, well, did, didn't, didn't Coach Emery call? He said, yeah, he called and said, if y'all came in here to have you arrested for stealing, stealing that game. <laughs> but uh, but it was really funny because Ed and I remained friends forever. And when I, when I was president of Winget, he actually had a he had a president's pass to come to any any game he could come to, come sit with me in the president's box because I, I loved him as a friend and uh, he knew more about football than anybody I knew. 
That's great. So, so Sam, do you have, being the youngest, do you have a favorite story from the book that you like to tell? Well, um, for some reason, this always ends up coming back to that Virginia-North Carolina game when I was 10 years old. And it was just a big day for both Ryan and me uh, because, like he said, he's down there with his camera that Santa Claus bought him, uh, standing beside the guys with the giant lenses and the you know expensive cameras. And he probably got the best picture of the day of uh, Barry Word scoring a winning touchdown. Of course, he got clobbered by a UNC defensive back, which might have been the only clean hit anybody from UNC had all day. And then uh, He was only about 14 at the time. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. yeah. And weighed probably, you know, 96 pounds. And uh, But apparently at that game, uh, or so I have been told, um, I walked out onto the field uh, during a timeout and tugged on dad's jersey and um, and uh, standing at the 50-yard line and said, man, I just want to tell you that you guys are you guys are doing a great job. <laughs> I, 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 Landis, I have never uh, – I've never uh, – confess to this crime um but uh dad swears that's the way it went down i don't know what the the less the least credible part of that story is that, that i went out on the field or that i told them they were doing a good job <laughs> <laughs> that's a great story and ryan you know you've seen it uh, as a child watching your father fish eighth in, in your career with espn you, you know you're on the sidelines a lot and you see what's going on uh, there are lots of stories here about uh, officials and what they have to say to, I'm, I'm sorry, the coaches and what they have to say to the officials about how they're doing on the field. I think there's one where the coach is running up the field, holding the card up, the evaluation card, calling your dad an SOB, and yeah. you know he's going to go back to high school. And there's a there's another one in Death Valley where Jerry Ford says, "This ain't fucking Catawba." Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah. From your perspective, you know, watching on the sidelines, uh, did you sometimes feel like uh, you needed to be protective of your dad? Do you feel protective of officials in general now as you watch games? What is your perspective? Because you're there to cover what people want to watch, which is the actual sporting contest. They don't necessarily care about the officials, but you've got this history. Yeah. Well, and and I think I've been labeled an official's apologist sometimes, but the reality is that I have always seen it as part of my job just because I'm fortunate enough to have the platform with college football to humanize officials, you know, and, and this is what we talk about in the book, you know, and dad said it right off the top of the show, which is, you know, officials are human beings first and foremost. And, and, you know, I'm not naive and I've learned the hard way that I knew that when we wrote this book, you know, hopefully thousands of people aren't going to hopefully they're going to read the book, but I don't expect any of them to go, Oh man, I love referees, you know, when the book's <laughs> over with, but, but I think that they're going to respect them a little bit. And so that's always been my goal is um to explain, this is how this happened. Even when they get it wrong, you know, all right, this is how this went down. And um, years ago for uh, ESPN, the magazine, I used to do a column uh, that was an official scouting report. And so if there was five big games coming up that weekend, I would talk to officials. A lot of them I'd known since I was a kid. And I would say, all right, you know, what do you expect to see this weekend from, you know, West Virginia and Texas? And they would say, all right, you know, this is what it's like on this sideline and this is what this offense is. And what I was trying to illustrate and underline was how smart the officials were. And they've done their work and they've scouted the teams and they know the teams just like the opposing teams do. 
and just like the, the television analysts do. In a lot of cases, no more than most cases, no more than a lot of my television colleagues do. But I got in trouble with that deal because I started talking to officials anonymously and I got a little too specific. You know, I would say, well, I wouldn't give a name, but I'd say a Big East umpire said so-and-so. And it was, in fact, it was West Virginia. Dana Holgerson, who's at Houston now, he, uh, the head coach at West Virginia, um, at the end of that season, those those stories I did got a lot of traffic. And and I think it helped uh, kind of illustrate what I was trying to say, which is officials really know football way better than you think. They don't just show up and do the game and leave. And they're not out. They're not evil. They're not trying to take them down, but they understand the teams and the tendencies that they're going to see on Saturdays. And I got a call from uh, Doug Rhodes, who at the time was the coordinator of football officiating at the ACC. And as you know, from the book was one of dad's longest tenured, you know, sideline colleagues. And uh, Doug called and he goes, Hey man, he said, I just want to let you know, I just left our end of season officiating meeting with all the coordinators from around the country. I said, yeah, he goes, yeah, you got to stop writing this column that you're right. <laughs> and he said, he said, we all agree that you make officials look great. He goes, but man, he goes, we've had to, so they had to implement a rule that stands to this day. It's been 10 years, which is officials aren't allowed to talk to the media directly. And a lot of the officials I know caught the Ryan McGee rule because, uh, they know they they're the ones that talked to me that gave me the information and I put it out there and uh and now I've ruined it for everyone. So uh so now there's a designated person or you just go through the coordinator if you have an officiating question. Yeah. But yeah, that's a really long way of saying yes. Uh I like to try to educate the public with the platform I've been given on officials and to the point that a lot of my colleagues are like, "Yeah, yeah, Ryan, we heard your dad was a ref and thanks for bringing that up again." So, so, Jerry, we're talking about uh, evaluations. Uh, you got evaluated uh, by the staff who, who looked after the officials. You also got evaluated by people coming out of church or you know, <laughs> went to the restaurant. Uh, I believe one of the people who was a big Carolina fan at one time said uh, in a game that you officiated uh, where Dre Bly, you know, made an interception that would have made a difference. And uh, some old lady said, uh, how you doing? And then she said, by the way, that call against Trey Bly in the Carolina Duke game sucked. <laughs> yeah. so, so I guess I want to ask you about your temperament a little bit uh, because, you know, having people screaming in your ear and calling your names and being critical of you after the fact, uh, uh, you know, that can be wearing on it. How, do you sep- how did you separate that and sort of let it roll off your back? Was it because you're part of a community that was dealing with it and, and you sort of had people to lean on? Or how did you deal with that? Uh, because you're, you were a college president. You were used to being in charge and telling other people where to be and where to stand. And now you're taking the brunt of it. And you can't really stand up and defend yourself because that's not your position to do, right? Yeah. And, and you know, during the games, uh, only once or twice in 400 games did I kind of lose it on the field when the coach just went on and on and on and on and on. And, and uh, but, but usually I, 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 I either wasn't aware it was there or I just, I just, just it was just built in just to ignore it. Uh, and one of my high school teammates asked me a couple of years ago, he said, how in the world are you concentrated and officiate when there's 85,000 people screaming at you? And I said, you know, I never knew they were there. I, I, you just, you're doing your job. You're focused on 22 players and six other officials and two head coaches and that nobody else is in the stadium. But, but uh, during, you know, when I lived in Raleigh, especially, uh, if I had a game at Maryland or Virginia or Florida State or Clemson, I never heard a word. But if I had a game at 
one of the four North Carolina schools. And when I went to work, went to church on Sunday morning, I, you know, I was going to get followed to the car by somebody suggesting what we could have done or asking me a question about what happened or whatever. And, uh, uh, I just kind of went with it and smiled and laughed. And it was just, it was just, it was just part of it. I, I think that, uh, anytime in my life, whether I was president of Wingate or officiating, uh, my wife took the criticisms a lot more seriously than I did. It would, that would hurt her feelings. And, and I would just kind of brush them off because, uh, if you think this guy's mad, wait, you see the guy next week, he's going to be madder, you know, and I, I just let it go. <laughs> And they make for great stories, too, and as you look back, because I, I, I wrote this down from the book as well. Barry Switzer, everybody's famous. Yeah. He, he, he remarked, uh, don't send Booker and McGee back next time. Send Jesse James and Billy the Kid, because at least I know they're going to rob That's him. exactly right. That, that's how the coaches feel, I think, sometimes. they they When they see us walk in, they think we slept under a bridge the night before. None of us had jobs, and we, you know – only a decent pair, only decent clothes we had is what we wore to the game on Saturday. And but, but you know, they were shocked to find out we were fairly highly educated and and, and reasonable people. But but I want to talk uh, shift it to Sam for a second because this book, Sam, is as much about uh, family as it is anything else. I mean, there's there's friendships, there's family. You talked a little bit about your mother. Uh, this is not just you uh, and your brother and your father. It was a family. Uh, affair. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely was that. You know, I even remember the first college football games I went to before we started traveling to dad's games. Mom would take us over to the Gardner Webb and see the Gardner Webb game because that's where dad was working at the time. And then when we ended up living in the triangle, you know, from ball boy at NC State to going to, to a ton of games. And by the time I was looking at where I wanted to go to college, I had been to all these places 10 times. Um, but it really, uh, with us, always was, uh, you know, there were family trips. Most of the time it was all four of us going somewhere. But like dad was saying earlier, there were also times where he, uh, you know, he he would take just Ryan or just me. Um, as you know, Landis, I've done a lot of cases that involve, you know, wrongful death. And, and a lot of times what you hear people talking about is that time my dad or my mom or whoever the person is that that's died, that time that just two of us went to the beach or that time just the two of us did this or that. and um, with us, a lot of those memories are, you know, that time dad took me to UVA or that time dad took Ryan to Clemson. Uh, and, but it's really, it was, it was always the four of us. And, you know, most of the time it was the four of us and really enjoying these trips together, spending time together. And when I look back on it, that's what I see. I see us as a family. And interestingly, you know, as our, our, as we all got busy, um, and Ryan was working for the football team at Tennessee and dad was uh, officiating still and taking mom on most of the weekends with him. And I was at Wake Forest or later, later on up in the Northeast. So we, you know, we would be, we'd, we'd end up talking and dad's like, well, I had Boston college, West Virginia day. Let me tell you about that. And Ryan's like, well, let me tell you about the Tennessee Auburn game. And, uh, and mom would be like, uh, let me tell you uh, how cool the, uh, you know, the shopping was around Boston College, uh, you know, but, but or, or I might say um, I have the goalpost from the uh, Clinton. <laughs> uh, but but there's a story in the book about how you got the goalpost. Yes. Yeah. But even when we weren't together, uh, it was such an integral part of us as a family. We would sort of 
catch back up at the end of Saturdays or maybe on Sunday afternoon and say, what was, what was your life in football today? Yeah. And, and, and I know your mother uh, has passed on and I know she'd be very proud of this effort that all three of you put together. Uh, Ryan, what do you think she'd have to say about uh, this collection that uh, the three of you have put together? Oh, it, it's, um, I mean, you know, every day is wonder what she'd say about so-and-so, but there are some days that are, much more impactful when it comes to that question than others. And the day that book came and, you know, I had, they sent three boxes of books to the house and I immediately drove to dad's house and said, here you go. And had my daughter with me. We got to watch him open it up. And I went to my brother's house and said, here you go. And right there in their brand new house in the kitchen, I got to watch him open up. That was the best part. So yeah, what I've always wondered is how it would have been, you know, had she been able to, to experience that, but she listen from the time I was, I can remember an elementary school in Shelby, North Carolina. And uh, I was very fortunate very early on to have a teacher in the second grade, Ms. Elliott. It was like, you know, she would keep me after class and we would talk about writing and she would help me, you know, do the old construction paper, staple it in the middle and turn it into a book. And she'd say, now I want you to write a book about this, or I want you to write a book about that. And I would come home and talk to mom about it. And mom was like, one day you're going to write a book, you know, real book, like one of these books in here. And so that's, that's, uh, yeah, I think about that all the time. Yeah. So, uh, before we have our final read here, we do, we do this on the Charlotte Ridge podcast. We do a little bit of writing life discussion and that's really kind of a good transition to that, Ryan. Uh, uh let me start, uh, Jerry, did you ever think, uh, I know you mentioned before that people were saying you ought to write this down. Did you ever think you would help write a book about your life in sports and, uh, and also, how gratified is it now to have this uh, added to the world? Well, it, it is. It's certainly very gratifying. It's uh, and and not only did we get to spend a lot of time together, but uh, the reminiscing brought us back into the company of a lot of people that we loved and cared about over the years, and uh, quite a few of the officials who helped me get started in in, in college football and the ones who helped me move to the ACC, they're no no longer with us. But it was really fun just to reminisce about them and 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 remind ourselves uh, that we would not have had this great experience had it not been some other people boosting us along the way. And sometimes they were very they were very critical and and but they were just trying to help you get better. And and, and being back with them was very special. And and no, I, I never thought we'd we'd ever get the book put together. I thought we'd just like most officials, we'd talk about it till the end of time and never get it done. But but uh, it it is very special to. Uh, to have this look a book of remembrance of a, a almost 40 years and landis i'll say this too I, you know I, i'm i'm a big believer in you know you need to get them their names on the record you know uh alan gaddy and norval nave and hannah mcgee and um ken rankin and you know ed emery and these people that you know everybody knows who bobby bowden is and everyone knows you know who ray lewis is and and you know all the big names are in the book but to me it's so important to get the names of those people. They're in the library of Congress now, right? I mean, they're, they're out there. You can go to the library and you can check out a book and you can read about these people. And to me, it's important that these people that had such an impact on dad's life and such an impact on our lives. Um, now, now they're on the record, you know, now they're out there. And and I think they, they deserve that in their lives. And so I, you know, that's something I always take very seriously working on any project, a particular project like this, that, um, you know, I want, I want some, I want some guy in Europe who's I'm never going to meet to read this book and know about my mom. Right. And, and, and to know about Sam and to know about, 
um, you know, th these people that, that they've never heard of and uh, that, that if it wasn't for them, my dad wouldn't have done what he did. And as a result, Sam and I would not have ever done what we did. And the people that work so hard behind the scenes, these these officials, um, ACC, Big E, small college, high school, whatever, I want people to know, you know, I, I, it's important to me to get their names in print, you know, and, and get them on the record for time for, you know, forever. Well, it's interesting because uh, you know, in terms of how careers turn out, but, uh, you know, Sam's on the sidelines watching his dad do all these uh, rule enforcements, and now he's a lawyer enforcing <laughs> yeah. yeah. And getting yelled at, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but before I go to Sam with this question, I want to ask you, you've had a writing career, Ryan. Um, you know, you've written for ESPN. Um, you also do some audio. You've written a book before this one. How is this project uh, of writing different, um, and, and what advice would you give to – other families who have stories like this they want to tell to collaborate on something like this? Well, I would say that even if you don't believe there's any chance that you could write a book, you need to get those conversations recorded, you know, and you need to get them transcribed and you need to have them handed down. You know, I have one cassette tape of, an, of me sitting on the front porch talking to my grandmother when I was a teenager about our family history, all this thing. Man, I wouldn't, I'll fight you to the ground. You try to take that thing away from me. And so it, to me, it's just important, even if it's just to put in a folder in your own home or to put on a zip drive in your own home is to get those things down. But what I always tell everybody is that the, I've written other books, um, but I never felt pressure like this one because number one, I wanted to get the story right. And number two, I wanted, you know, you look at the cover of this book. I say it all the time. Uh, the three gentlemen on the cover of that book, we share six college degrees and I barely got one of them. <laughs> I want to make sure that, that I do my that make sure I did those guys right. So tip tip to all the uh, listeners who want to be writers that it doesn't take a college degree to write a good book. So there you no, you, it take it might take one, yeah. but you, but you don't have to. Your transcript doesn't have to be great. <laughs> and Sam, uh, you like me are a lawyer, um, you know, who writes books, and you're actually working on a novel now. And that's a whole other topic about lawyers turned authors. We won't go there. But what attracted you? Uh, to writing. I mean, you're in the courtroom, you're, you're fighting. You know, we used to fight on the other side of cases together. That's a pretty intense uh, environment sometimes. So what, what's the trial? I always have said, you know, in my recovering lawyer trial years here that I enjoy writing about conflict more than I enjoy experiencing it on a daily basis. <laughs> but what, what, attra what attracts you to writing, Sam? Well, I always say, Landis, about, you know, being a litigator like, like you've been a long time and like I've been, it would be as if you're a surgeon and you're working on somebody and someone else is paid very well to smack your hands away or pull the scalpel out of your hands. Um, you know, we have one of the few careers where someone else is always paid every day to try to stop us from doing our job. Um, I've, you know, and, and we do a lot of writing as lawyers, but it's just a completely different kind of writing. It's a very adversarial style of writing. I've always loved to write, just like Ryan was saying. I had a I had a third grade teacher who got me interested in writing. A seventh grade teacher. I had another. I had the same lady, Joanne Clanton, for English in the ninth and the eleventh grade. Uh, when my novel comes out next year, her name's going to be in the acknowledgments because she convinced me that I not only did she show me that I could love writing, but she convinced me I might be okay at it. Um, but yeah, it's it, to me, it was. Uh, it, it's a creative process that's fun. It's something that you're, like Ryan said, putting something down, putting it on the record, having it out there. 
like the novel I'm working on about our family story um, from the 19th century. Uh, but there definitely is an aspect of it of this is it's a heck of a lot more peaceful than what I do um, 60 hours a week. You know, so uh, uh, it, it's something that is also like a hobby for me that is a, that's relaxing in a way. Not quite as relaxing as standing in a river with a fly rod, but um, but I think those two go hand in hand. How many times you spend some nice time outdoors, my brain immediately goes to something I want to write or a story I want to tell. Um, but yeah, there's definitely a, a search for peace aspect for it for me compared to my daily adversarial life. Yeah, we've had a lot of lawyers uh, turned authors uh, on Charlotte's podcast. Uh, I try to say there's a quota. We only allow so many on a month, so... You know, you snuck in, you snuck in this month, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it is, it's fun. So we're, we're going to wrap up here with, uh, with some readings, uh, uh, that kind of tie into that, this idea of humanizing officials. Uh, we're going to start, uh, you know, with Ryan reading uh, a section of the book, uh, followed by Sam, and then we're going to finish with, uh, a reading by your father. This starts in the chapter Zebra Emeritus, Ryan, with you starting off, uh, with that chapter. The morning after Dad's last game, I made the ultimate sports writer misstep. I opened ESPN.com, clicked on my story, A Day with the BCS Refs, and scrolled down to the comments section. This was the first sentence that I read. Of course this idiot would write something nice about these referee idiots. His last name is the same as the field judge. It's his damn dad. Refs suck. In the years since Dad's last game, I have written about him often. I have talked about him even more. I've done it so much that it has become a running joke with my ESPN college football coworkers. Hey, Ryan, your dad was a ref. Wow, you've never mentioned that. But why wouldn't I? I now have the opportunity to cover college football, the very dream that was ignited on the sideline of Virginia in 1983, and my perspective on the game, which I believe to be unique, comes directly from my officiating bloodline. As a result, it will always be my ongoing mission to humanize officials to try and help sports fans develop a better understanding of that third team on the field. People don't have to like officials. Most never will, and I know that. However, I honestly believe they can be smarter football fans if they have a better understanding of the men and women who blow their whistles, not just on autumn weekends, but in every sport at every level. Heck, that's why the book you currently hold in your hands exists. I've seen firsthand that watching the officials in addition to the teams makes the game more interesting. I've seen that happen with my friends who started watching Dad because I made them. I know I probably drove them crazy with it in the beginning, but then one of them might say, man, your dad was all over that pass downfield, and that feels like a win. But we aren't naive here. We know there will always be way more people booing the officials or making fun of them than paying attention to them or respecting them, especially now. Uh, down at Clemson one day, I was running off the field with Dr. Ernie Benson a groundbreaking HBCU educator, and another official who was an attorney. Between us, we had nine college degrees. This old boy in a paps blue ribbon hat who had about three teeth shook a beer at us and yelled, y'all's the three dumbest bitches ever been down here. You know what? We're probably never going to convince that guy that officials are actually pretty good, pretty smart people who love football even more than he does. And that's okay, but that doesn't mean we'll, we'll stop trying. <laughs> that's great. Jerry, as we wrap this up, I'd like to sort of give you the last word here. Um, you've had this, uh, well, first of all, you're holding, you got something on your hand there. You got a ring on your finger, right? Um, <laughs> yes. The rose ball, that's the rose ball yes. ring? 
Yeah, we. I mean, you need, you need to lift weights to carry uh, around. Yeah, we always said that uh, that uh, prostitutes and football referees wore the gaudiest gaudiest jewelry, and uh, I, I've got the most obscene <laughs> rings. That this is not the worst one, uh, but it's. Uh, but we always. Usually, if we had a game of any kind of importance, they would give us a ring or a watch or something, which you know we we all appreciated having as a memento. But but uh, that that was a that one's pretty special. That was the, the, my second time to the Rose Bowl, and uh, uh, that was uh, Southern Cal and, and Michigan is a great game, and it was, it was nice to have a memento of it. So, just sort of final words here, Jerry. Um, with this career you've had uh, from the intramural game to Fish State and Rose Bowl and national championship games. Uh, there's been a lot uh, that's happened over that time. Um, you've had a great experience with your sons tagging along, your wife with you there as well at the time. Now your your young boys are growing into to, to men who are you know, helping you tell this story. What does that mean to you? And uh, as you reflect on this uh, on this journey, well, I I think I, I, it makes me feel like I've done my job. You know. Uh, I know my, my my dad made it. Well, my, my biological dad died when I was an infant, but I had a wonderful stepfather. And he used to say to me all the time that the that, that most important job he would ever have was was, was uh, giving direction to my brother and myself and help us become men. And I kind of feel like uh, that's kind of where I am in life now. When I, when I look and see Sam and his family healthy and happy and successful. And I see Ryan and his family healthy, happy, and successful. I feel like, well, it's, uh, uh, I did my most important job well. And uh, that, that makes me feel pretty good. Yeah, that's a great way to end it. I want to, I want to thank uh, Sam. Thanks for being on the show today. Absolutely, man. Ryan, thanks for being here, bud. Yeah, no, this is great. Usually when I talk to Sam's lawyer friends, it's a lot more boring than that. Yeah. It's great. Well, that, that might be the best compliment I could get that I don't sound <laughs> And Jerry, it's so good to have you on the show and, and for you to bring your, your young boys now turned into to men uh, with you today. Thanks for being Thank here. Thank you, Lance. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker, and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week, I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Now offering video visits so you can take control of your orthopedic care from the comfort of your home. Schedule online at orthocarolina.com. Ortho Carolina, you improved.